Listen to this portion of God's story. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. The mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. (coughs) Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, He pulled his cloak over his face, went out, and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram, also anoint Jesus, son of Nimsi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Melacho, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel. And Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All those knees have not bowed down to Baal, and those mouths have not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Amen. Well done. There's some tough names in there. So (laughs) better you than me. 
So again, I want to welcome you to Trinity and thank you for being here today. If you've been with us over the last six or seven weeks or so, we are in a series called Unleashing Hope. And it's taken from a book called HQ, written by uh, Ray Johnston, where he's outlining uh, seven principles or seven factors that he believes will give us the kind of hope that we need and, and also the ability to instill that kind of hope in the people within our sphere of influence. And we really need that. Uh, one of the things that he says in, in his book is, is that, you know, we, we can go for 40 days without food. We can go for three days without water. We can go for eight minutes without air, but we can't even go a second without hope. We really need hope, and there's a world just outside these walls that is just dying for hope, and we have the answer to their questions. And so today, what we're going to look at, the principle that we're going to be looking at is burnout, replacing burnout with balance. Replacing burnout with balance. And so I want to begin by asking you, how many of you have ever felt anxious? Yeah? <laughs> how many of you have felt fearful or, or just exhausted, depressed, despondent? I mean, we've all been there, right? And so when you hear the story of Elijah, chances are you can relate. You, you can probably think back to a time in your life where you can say, man, I was there. Or maybe... Maybe you're there now. And if you're there now, um, this message today is for you. This message is for you. Uh, Elijah's story reads very much like a case study in burnout. A case study in burnout. And so I want to kind of treat it like a case study. And I'm wondering, how many of you have ever seen the television show House MD? You remember that show, House MD, with uh, Dr. Gregory House? Remember, he's this incredible, brilliant doctor, and he, he's surrounded by these other brilliant interns and doctors. And, and one of the things that they do is they try to determine the cause based on the symptoms that they're seeing in people that come in with these really difficult cases, medical cases. They try to determine the symptoms. They, they try and unpack it, and, and they try to prescribe the perfect treatment based on their discoveries, Right? And so I, I would like for you today to kind of imagine yourself as being part of Dr. House's team. And, and that we're looking at Elijah's story very much like a case study. And we're going to try and unpack what it is that we see in this story that is bringing Elijah down. And then later we're going to be able to apply that to our lives as well. So uh, we're going to be looking for symptoms. We're going to be looking for a diagnosis. We're going to be looking for the cause, the cause, and finally, we're going to be looking for an appropriate treatment. And I would bet that when we find that, that treatment, we'll be able to apply some of those same things to our lives if we're feeling a little bit of burnout, which some of you are today, I know. So let's start with the story again. Um, Elijah was a prophet from the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he'd been serving under this evil king by the name of Ahab. It's during the 9th century B.C. And Ahab, for political reasons, had married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Remember that name? Jezebel. She was even more evil than he was. I mean, she was really, really evil. And one of the things that she did, one of the things that she was known for is she introduced Baal worship to Israel. And she was so uh, forceful about it that eventually almost all of Israel 
succumbed to her pressure. They, they turned their backs on God and they started worshiping Baal. And so God raised up this prophet by the name of Elijah to be a judge and a prophet and to hopefully restore Israel to a right relationship with God. So this is a very dark period in the history of Israel. Most of Israel has turned their back on God. And in chapter 18, we read that after this long period of disobedience, long period of disobedience, Elijah has this plan, and I think God instills this idea in him. He's going to set up a challenge. He's going to challenge the prophets of Baal. And there are 450 prophets of Baal. And they are overseeing this entire endeavor. And he challenges them to meet him on top of Mount Carmel. And what he intends to do there is to set up like this public display of God's force and power. And he's going to give the prophets of Baal an opportunity to allow Baal to present himself as the one true God. And if he can, well, then he'll allow the people to follow Baal. But if nothing happens, Isaiah is going to set up his own altar and call fire down from heaven in the same way that the prophets of Baal are going to. And if God responds to him, everyone will know who the one true God is. And so all morning, the prophets of Baal are up there calling down to Baal, calling out to Baal, calling, asking him to bring fire from heaven, and nothing happens. Just nothing happens. And, and so by noon, Isaiah starts to, to make fun of him. Or Elijah, I'm sorry. Elijah starts to make so, too, so many prophets. Elijah starts to make fun of, 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 these, of these prophets of Baal because they're cutting themselves. I mean, they're doing everything they possibly can to get Baal to respond to their cries. And he just proves that they're just powerless. And so then he says, listen, everyone, gather around. And he sets up his altar. He puts on the wood. He puts the, 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 the cow on top. It's cut into pieces. And then he steps forward, and he calls on the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. And suddenly, fire comes down from heaven, and it is so intense that it not only burns up the sacrifice, it burns up the wood, it actually burns up the rocks of the altar. I mean, that's the kind of force that God displays in that moment. And as soon as that happened, you can bet that he is pumped. He is so excited because God has revealed himself in such a profound way. And so immediately what he does is he, he tells everyone to capture all of the 450 prophets of Baal and put them to death which is what he did. Puts them all to death. Again, he's feeling like just so pumped up on adrenaline, so pumped up in the power of the Spirit. He knows that this is the day that God is going to do something miraculous. And so the next thing he does is he runs all the way to Jezreel, which is the capital, 20 miles away. He runs to Jezreel. And you know, today is marathon day. And I don't know if you've ever tried to run 20 miles before, but it is not an easy feat. You know, I, I signed up for a half marathon a few years ago, and I remember getting on about mile eight, and I remember asking myself, why did I do this? 
why am I punishing myself in this manner? You know, and, and yet, Elijah runs 20 miles, so pumped up, so filled with confidence, and then he gets to the capital, and then he receives a message from Jezebel. Remember the queen, evil queen Jezebel? Now, he is fully anticipating that when he gets to Jezreel, that God is going to turn everyone away from these prophets of Baal and that they will be reunited with God. And this will be one of the most glorious days. It will be the fulfillment of everything that he's been called to. But when he gets there, he gets a message from Queen Jezebel. And she says, you know, if by the end of today, you you are not dead, essentially, uh, may the same thing that happened to, to those prophets of Baal happen to me. That's essentially what she says. She said, you will be dead by the end of today. I swear by it. And when Elijah heard her message, he went from being on top of the world, filled with energy, filled with the spirit, filled with absolute confidence to being completely disillusioned all at once. All at once. And what are his symptoms? He's exhausted. He's fearful. He feels isolated. He feels depressed. He's filled with self-pity. And so what is the diagnosis? What happened to him? How could he go from such a mountaintop experience to, be, to being in the pit of despair so quickly? Well, it appears that he's experiencing burnout. Burnout. But how do we get to that point? What causes burnout? Well, he's been running at an absolutely unsustainable pace for some time. He's been working so hard for God. And I don't know what it must have taken for him to gather all of those 450 prophets, to to build that altar, to climb up on top of Mount Carmel, to, to convince everyone to come, to call out to the Lord all day long, and then to run 20 miles immediately after that. Now, he must be physically exhausted. But I think there's a deeper-rooted issue that goes even beyond his physical exhaustion, which certainly does lead to burnout. But that was unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. In his book, HQ, Johnson mentions that a lot of times when we feel burned out, it's not necessarily because we're working any harder than we were when we were feeling great. It's just that things have happened that are so discouraging and so disappointing within our work that we just don't have the bandwidth and the power and the strength. We feel disappointed, and that leads to burnout. Now, Elijah has done everything that he could for God. He's done everything that he could for God. He had a vision for how things were supposed to play out. He knew how things were supposed to go down when he got to Jezreel. And it just didn't happen the way that he intended. It didn't happen. He envisioned that, that Jezreel would be cast out, maybe put to death, or that, that uh, Jezebel would be cast out, that Ahab would be uh, disposed, that all of the people of Israel would return to God, and this would be this glorious, epic day, the fulfillment of his mission. But the people didn't repent. They didn't repent. They didn't turn away from their idols. 
And, and Queen Jezebel is not impressed at all with what he did on Mount Carmel. In fact, the exact opposite is true. She, she becomes even more brazen and, and dead set on killing him. And worse, worse yet, God didn't show up. I mean, he did on Mount Carmel, but that was only part of the plan. When he got to Jezreel, where did God show? Where is God? We got to finish what we started here. And it didn't happen. So Elijah's unmet expectations caused such a crisis of faith that he's become completely despondent. He's overwhelmed with fear. And instead of being emboldened by God's display of power on Mount Carmel, he, he, he feels so fearful that he needs to run for his life. Can you imagine how that transition happened so quickly? Now, he ran all the way to Beersheba, which is another 100 miles away. So he runs 100 miles away. He dismisses his servant, which is what the word says, which is essentially another way of saying, I quit. You know, this is my staff. This is my team. This is my ministry partner. And I'm dismissing him because I'm done. I did what I could. And God, you didn't show up. And so I'm done. And so he travels another day into the desert, and he lays down under a broom tree, and then he prays that God would just take his life. Have you ever been in that spot? Have you ever been so disillusioned that you wanted to just lay down and die? And do you remember what it was that led up to you feeling that way? I can remember a few points in my life where I felt that way. Maybe it was a relationship that didn't go the way that you intended. You had this vision for how this relationship was going to turn out. And things were going well for a while. And suddenly, it just took a turn. And it wasn't the turn that you intended. It wasn't the turn that you wanted. And you started calling out to God, and nothing seemed to happen. The relationship died. The relationship fell apart. It wasn't ending the way you wanted it to. Maybe your heart was set on getting into a certain school. You applied to a certain school and, and you envisioned living in the dorms there. You, you envisioned every aspect of what it would be like to be part of that community. And you prayed and you knew that God was going to answer that prayer. You worked so hard for it. And then you didn't get in. Things didn't happen according to your plan. Or maybe you applied for a job. And and you went on the first interview, and then the second interview, and then the third interview, and things were going great. You felt like you had incredible rapport, and everything was clicking, and you were just like, this job is mine. I'm so excited about this. I'm so excited what's going to happen. And then they called you up and said, I'm so sorry to tell you, we've decided to uh, go with another candidate. But thanks for applying. And where does that leave you? God, what are you doing? You see, when things don't go our way, it's easy to assume that God has abandoned us. It's so easy to assume that God has abandoned us. So let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to wrap God around your plan instead of the other way around where you are wrapping yourself around God's plan? How'd that work for you? I know I've done it so many times. Now, Elijah is convinced that God has failed him. 
And that's why he's feeling so despondent. That's why he's feeling so burned out. But the reality of the situation is that Elijah is trying to wrap God around his plan. He, 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 He doesn't believe that God has a plan that surpasses his own plan. He's absolutely convinced that his plan is the best. And in Henry Blackaby's book, Discovering God, and I remember reading this years ago, and I was just like, oh, I cannot believe this. He says, we must make major adjustments in our lives to join God in what he is doing. You see, I was always, always, always kind of drifting along, and I would say, hey, God, I'd like, to, I'd like for you to join me in this great idea I have. I know you're going to love this. The reason Henry says this is because he knows our tendency is to come up with a plan and then ask God to join us instead of the other way around. I cannot tell you how many times I've done this. And then when it doesn't work out the way I intended, I get so frustrated with God. I mean, I get frustrated and angry with the omnipotent, omnipresent creator of the universe, and I ask him, how could you not trust me to know what's best? I mean, the audacity of God, right? Have we been there? So Elijah is burned out, he's exhausted, he's fearful, he's isolated, he's depressed, and he wants to die. He just wants to die. So what is the appropriate treatment for a person that's in that state? What is the appropriate treatment? Well, one of the things that we need to notice about Elijah is he's an ordinary guy. He's an ordinary human being. He doesn't just have a spiritual nature, even though he's a prophet, even though he's an incredible man of God. He has a physical And he has an emotional nature as well. And we all do. We have a spiritual nature. We have an emotional nature. We have a physical nature. So he's physically and he's emotionally and he's spiritually drained. So the appropriate treatment would need to address all three of those fears. And this is where we often get into trouble if you're a believer or if believers are speaking into your life. We oftentimes uh, only focus on the spiritual. And we kind of expect that over time. But I want you to notice how the angel of the Lord appears to Elijah and how different it is from other times in the scripture when the angel of the Lord appears. I want you to notice this. When he appears to Elijah, he doesn't say, Fear not, my good and faithful servant. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Repent. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't rebuke Elijah for his lack of faith or for trying to put him in a box or for for being such a pansy. He doesn't do any of those things. What he does is he he says, I'm going to cook something for you. I'm going to cook a meal for you, a hot meal. Right on these coals, and I'm going to put it right next to you. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about God and his approach? Tim Keller says this. He says, whenever God approaches a problem, he always does so from a multidisciplinary approach. A multidisciplinary approach. So the angel knows that Elijah is both physical, emotional, spiritual. He, He knows that he needs to address each of these. And if we don't apply a multidisciplinary approach to the way that we reach out to people that are in need, we're gonna fall short and we might do more harm than good. And maybe some of you have been the recipient of that kind of care. Someone who only focuses on the spiritual. 
And I was, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Job. Remember Job and Job's friends? How after, after a long period of being afflicted and discouraged and alone, after losing everything, Job's friends show up. And they come to Job and they sit down with him and they spend some time with him. And they are absolutely convinced that his problem is spiritual. They're absolutely convinced that it's spiritual. And so what do they tell him to do? They say, you know what, you need to, you need to figure out what you did to make God mad. You need to repent of those sins. You need to confess those sins and just hope that God is responsive to you. They did nothing to comfort him. They did nothing to empathize. They just made him feel worse. And I'm sure Job was probably sitting there thinking, thanks, guys. You know, with friends like you, I don't really need enemies. You know, and sometimes when our well-meaning friends are trying to help us in a situation that we're in, that's the way we feel because of of their approach, and we can't afford to make the same mistakes. In his book, The Nine Things That You Simply Must Do to Succeed in Love and Life, Henry Cloud says that sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is just to take a nap. Take a nap. I remember reading that. I remember I was on a plane on my way out to Washington. I was feeling kind of tired, and I read that, and I was like, I just got my money's worth. This, if that was the one thing that I remember from this book, this is, I, I just got my money's worth. Because I spiritualize things, and we do that often as believers. We think, oh, if I just doubled down on my scripture reading, if I, if I just memorized more scripture, if I just spent more quiet times with God, and those are good. But do you know the spiritual disciplines can actually be a heavy weight upon our shoulders? And I don't think that's what God ever intended. I don't think that's what he ever intended. In verse 8, it says that after Elijah had regained his strength, he traveled for 40 days to Mount Horeb. Now, that's an interesting thing. He finally recovers his strength, and then he gets up and he travels another 40 miles to a mountain. Why would he do that? Well, this is really interesting. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. Do you remember what happened on Mount Sinai with Moses? It's the same place that God revealed himself to Moses. Remember how he revealed himself to Moses? When Moses was hiding in the cleft of the rock and God came by. Listen to what happens. So, I'm confident that Elijah is thinking, listen, I'm still in the midst of a crisis of faith. I may be feeling a little bit better, but what I need right now is I need to experience God in a new way. I need him to reveal himself to me in a way that I can relate to because I'm not feeling it right now. Have you ever believed but not really felt it? I think that's where Elijah is right now. And of course, the, the angel knows exactly what he's doing. But the angel says to him once he's on the mountain, in the cave, in the cleft of the rock, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Do you think the angel of the Lord is curious or or doesn't ask, what are you doing here? He's giving us, or the person he's talking to, a chance to process, a chance to work out their faith, a chance to work out their, their situation, their thinking, to think through and to feel what they're feeling. And so when Elijah answers, um, we, we immediately see some faulty logic in the way that he responds 
He says, I have been very zealous for my Lord Almighty, meaning I've, I've done everything for you. And, and the Israelites has re, they have rejected your covenant and tore down the altars and put your prophets to death to the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Okay, so he's assuming a lot of things here because of the condition that he's in. And if you read between the lines, here's what he's saying. He said, I did everything that you asked me to do, Lord, and I had the perfect plan. I had the perfect plan. All you had to do, Lord, is show up. That's all you had to do. And the Israelites would have repented, but since you didn't show up, everything that I did was for nothing. Everything that I did was for nothing. No one repented. Jezebel is still on the throne. I was the last hope. And now they're going to kill me. Thanks a lot. Now the angel of the Lord knows that there are some problems with the way Elijah is thinking. He knows that. But he allows him to talk it out. Why? Because he knows that Elijah is more than just a spiritual being. He knows that he's more than just a physical being. He knows that he's an emotional being. And we heal as we talk things out. When we start sharing our feelings, we start recognizing some of the areas where we may have been getting things a little bit wrong, and we start to self-correct. You see, talking things out is part of the healing process, and we need that as emotional beings, and that's what the Lord is allowing him to do. Now, finally, the Lord addresses Elijah's spiritual nature, so he gets there. He gets to the spiritual nature, and I love how he does this. He tells Elijah to stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord because the Lord is about to pass by. Remember, he did the same thing to Moses. Now, Elijah is so despondent. He's still so burned out. He doesn't even respond to God. He just lays in the cave. He doesn't even come out. And, the guy, and then all of a sudden, there's this incredible wind that shatters the rocks on the outside of this cave. But the scripture says that God was not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, and and, and it comes, and the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then fire comes, but the Lord is not in the fire. And then finally, there is a still, small voice. A still, small voice. And the scripture says that when Elijah heard that still, small voice, he pulled his cloak over his face, And he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. For God had revealed himself to Elijah in the most unexpected way. In the most unexpected way. Now, what was God doing? What was he trying to convey to Elijah? Elijah would have known that God revealed himself to Moses through the wind and the earthquakes and the fire. He would have known how God showed up in those capacities in the past. He knew the scriptures. But God chose to reveal himself to Elijah in a very different way. You see, he's reminding Elijah that God will never allow us to put him in a box. He'll never allow us to put him in a box. He's saying, listen, Elijah, you were completely disillusioned with me because I didn't show up in the way that you expected me to. But is there a chance 
that I had a plan that might have surpassed yours? Is there a chance? So then God reveals his plan to Elijah at the end of this passage. He reveals it. When we get to verse 15, God shows up and he shows his grace by essentially saying, I am not done with you yet, Elijah. In spite of all your despondency and in spite of your lack of faith, in spite of your unwillingness to trust me, I'm not done with you yet. He's going to raise up some new kings. This is what God tells him. I'm going to raise up some new kings. You're going to anoint them, and they will bring judgment on those who need to be judged. You see, this was all part of my plan. Secondly, he gives Elijah a new partner in ministry, Elisha. He says, I'm going to give you a partner. I'm going to give you someone that's going to work with you, walk with you, someone that you can confide in, someone that's going to follow you. You're going to do great things together, and then you're going to anoint him to carry on the ministry that you've started. And then he says, oh, and by the way, you thought that you were the only one? Well, I have reserved 7,000 people that have never turned their backs on me, never turned their backs. So you are by no means alone. You are not alone. You were never alone. And what does this mean for you and me? Well, here's what it means. God helped Elijah to see that his view of his own brokenness and his own sin was far too small. And he also simultaneously helped him to see that his view of God's grace and mercy was far too small. Isn't that interesting? Think about the symbolism in Elijah's encounter with God. When Elijah is in the cleft of the rock, he is shielded from the wind and the earthquake and the fire. All of those things are tokens of God's judgment. God uses each of those things in other places in scripture, scripture as tokens of judgment. And Elijah deserved judgment. He deserved it. And yet he was sheltered by the cleft of the rock. And God still speaks to him in the midst of that through his still small voice. And we are sheltered by a different rock. We are sheltered by Jesus Christ, who is known as the rock, the rock of salvation. He is our rock. He is the one that shields us from judgment. He is the one that intercedes on our behalf. He is the one that extends grace to us. He's the one who fills us with his spirit. And he is the one who reminds us that in spite of our lack of obedience, our tendency to turn our backs on him, our tendency to try and wrap him around our plan, he says, receive my grace because I'm not done with you yet. I still have plans for you that far surpass any of the plans that you could have come up for yourself. So if you're feeling exhausted today, if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling burned out or simply struggling to trust God because it doesn't seem that he's, he's with you in the way that you had envisioned, remember what happened with Elijah. Remember how God reveals himself. And also remember this, what Jesus says to you. This is a word to you from Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. It says, come to me, This is Jesus speaking into your life. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's coming from a, from a God that loves you unconditionally, who has a plan for you that far surpasses anything that you could hope or imagine. And he's saying to you today, I am not done with you yet. Trust me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, thank you for extending your grace in the midst of our outright rebellion at times. Our inability to trust you in times where it should be obvious, Lord, that you're there for us, and yet we just can't see it. And you don't come in judgment, but you come in mercy and grace and in your love, and you remind us that you still have plans for us, that we are still loved, and you welcome us home. In Jesus' name, amen.